Welcome, everyone, to Contents May Vary. I'm Angie Feather Sutton, talking to geeky people about geeky things. I'm a proud fangirl geek with pieces published in Stage Directions, Den of Geek, The Mary Sue, and more. This episode's guest is Mike Dodge Weisskopf. I met Mike through KCRW's Independent Producer Program, as he's the senior producer for their music department. He's been publicly writing, thinking, and obsessing about music since age 13, when he published his first fanzine on a hand-me-down Apple IIe and a dot matrix printer. He is the founding producer of KCRW's Lost Notes, which I reviewed on my website, and as he writes on his, his website, makes beautiful and atmospheric audio stories. A love of sound is the fundamental through line of his life and work. When he's not producing audio, he's an avid outdoorsman and has worked as a fire lookout under the U.S. Forest Service and volunteered on backgroundy trail restoration projects deep in the Los Padres National Forest. Thank you for joining me today, Mike. It is my pleasure, Angie. Well, let's start with the most important question. Do you Ooh. consider yourself a music geek or a music nerd? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think I'm a little of both, uh, honestly. Um, that's a really great. I'm sure you've had many conversations about like the very the taxonomy between geek and nerd on this show and like which one people most strongly identify with. Huh. I wow. mean, admittedly, doing an, a fanzine on an Apple IIe makes you pretty nerdy. <laughs> no, all right, that's fair. I mean, I, I think, I think if there's any, like, I guess the way I would describe it is, I think my, uh, the sincerity of my passions and the sincerity of my like kind of emotional investment in what I do, definitely leans more towards like the nerd category. And if that's like a thing, I, I think maybe like the difference is like geekdom in some sense can be redeemed by the like. The depth of knowledge and like the the well roundedness of one's perspective on a given thing that one is geeky about, like there's a certain cred with that. I think whereas nerdery to me feels hasn't been like redeemed in the same way culturally. I think nerds are still not like well regarded. Like there's something about like an inability to like emotionally regulate your enthusiasm about something. Mm -hmm. Maybe that makes a nerd more than a geek. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Yeah, but like I think of like. Revenge of the Nerds was a movie. Revenge of the Geeks was not a movie. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Um, as someone who grew up with that movie as a touchstone of like my self-identification, I think that feels like the best example I can come up with. But, um, yeah, no, I think I'm both. Well, the running joke is, of course, the people who know the difference are dorks. So, <laughs> <laughs> Also guilty. Also guilty. Yeah, I, I admittedly, I'm all three. It just depends on the situation. In all seriousness, what what about music draws you? Why music? Oh God! Um, I mean, why is it music for anybody? I think I, I think there's like a you know, music. I think is something that's fundamental to all human beings. I think music is something that we all innately can create. I think it's it's something that we that sort of exists in our not just our cultural DNA, but like our heritage as as human creatures. And you know, music exists in nature. Music exists in mathematics and mathematics exists in music like it's it's one of these things that just encompasses every aspect of our existence and so i think it's kind of hard not to be um on some level you know i I think as someone who grew up in kind of punk rock circles or in amateur diy circles i think i never thought of aptitude as being a requirement for music i never thought that like you had to be a musician to be someone who appreciated or even made music and so that's kind of the 
organizing principle, not just of my enjoyment of music, but also my making of music and of the way that I think about music. You know, I really think of it outside of the sphere of this monetizable professional, whatever the kind of things that we attach to it as a capitalistic endeavor. You know, music represents something deeper. And I love just how deep that can go and how many wild byways of existence and history and heritage and culture and communication and all of those things that it can encompass. It's really kind of like the the unifying thread of not just my existence, but I think everybody's in some way. Now, I'm a big fan of origin stories. Take me back to that first time where you realized that it was more than just a passing fancy and something that you knew that you wanted to be part of your life. Yeah, I don't think I had a choice. I mean, I think it's always, you know, I, I think back to my earliest memories and it's like me beating the crap on my parents' couch, you know, like with drumsticks or whatever. Like I, I was always kind of drumming. It started as a drummer when I was like five, you know, my parents got sick of me destroying all of their kitchenware and furniture by just beating on it. So they got me a drum set and it was pretty much off to the races from there. And then, uh, you know, it was it was really just kind of a primal, a primal expression. And I think as a as a young person, especially if you're someone who like tends in some way towards the nerdy or the geeky or the whatever it may be, you don't necessarily, unless you like have really emotionally sophisticated parents, I think it's hard to like have outlets for that kind of more primal energy that we all also have. Certainly, as young people, if we're lucky enough to like keep in touch with that, so I think music was like the primal outlet for me when I might otherwise just have gotten lost in my thoughts or in my head or in books or whatever else, you know. So it really, at first, I think it was just a way for me to like offcast that human energy. And as I grew up and sort of developed the sophistication of feelings that comes with becoming an adolescent and having like that richness and complexity of internal sort of dialogue with myself and those urges and those thoughts and those feelings, then, you know, I became, that's when I really started to learn like piano or guitar or instruments that had more of a melodic component because I now had all these different colors to my emotional life that I had to learn to express as well. So it's always been like a survival mechanism for me making music. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to like, you know, impress people or make more friends or <laughs> it's never really had that component for me. Like I've never successfully been the person who's like, I'm going to bring the guitar to like the high school party and like, we're all going to jam or whatever. Like that's not my universe. So where did you grow up? Rockford, Illinois. How did your love of music kind of turn into producing audio and audio stories? Well, the way it really started was when I was a young kid, maybe like eight, nine, ten. Um, my family used to go to Great America, Six Flags, like all the theme park kind of things. And they always had these like recordings, like faux recording studios that you could go to. And like they were basically like early versions of karaoke where you would go in and like they would give you a lyric sheet and you would like record a popular song of the day and they would have like a board with all these songs you could choose. I remember those. <laughs> so I used to do those all the time as a kid. And, you know, they you go in and you get like one take. Right. And they let you do your thing. And then afterwards they play it back over like the loudspeaker for like the entire park to hear <laughs> much to your like 
horror and mortification, but like there's something weirdly thrilling about it. And I was like a pretty good singer when I was young. Like I was pretty as someone who like had loved music and was already like singing and banging on things for a long time by that point. So I'd get like a really great response from making these tapes. And I think there was something about that like feedback loop that like an early sense that like there was an audience for what I was doing in some way, even if they were sort of captive <laughs> in the context of a theme park. So after a certain point, I was like, I want to do this with my own music. And so I like weirdly as like a 12 year old, I, I looked up recording studios in my hometown and I found this guy like out in the sticks who would charge like 20 bucks an hour. And my mom didn't know what else to do with me at that time. So she like booked me a couple hours with this guy randomly. And it was like, you know, the weird thing about those is like back in those days, it was all like church people because they had all the gear from like running the PA for their like evangelical bands or whatever and the church services on Sunday and like the mega churches and stuff. So these guys would like make extra pin money on the weekends with like their home studios, probably doing a lot of like really white gospel music or whatever. So I came bouncing in there as like this basically feral 12 year old <laughs> with my weird songs. And uh, I just started like kind of every once in a while my mom like had the extra money you know she wasn't like super she was pretty working class like there wasn't a lot of money going around so every once in a while she'd like scrape up the money for me to do this and then I think it was my 13th birthday my dad went to Radio Shack and like bought me like the cheapest DJ mixer and like a really like their $20 microphone like just a really basic setup and like he like a hand-me-down cassette player from the 70s that he had like in his attic or something and they just built me like a little tiny recording studio uh, in my bedroom. And from that point, it was like, all bets are off. I mean, I just, I made like, I'm staring at a huge stack of these tapes. I actually happen to be digitizing all of them right now. Um, so I've been listening to like these tapes of me as like a 13, 14 year old, um, just writing like literally thousands of songs over the course of those couple of years. So it just became... I sort of just became a studio cat, like at a really young age as a result of this kind of series of of events. And by the time I got to college, I was like, well, I'm definitely like a recording artist now. <laughs> so I've been making records since I was, you know, barely uh, in my adolescence. So I did that. I got a job at a record label and started putting out CDs and started touring. And I had a band called Science Park that I did for most of that time. And did that until like I was about 25 and then realized that the music industry was a horrible cesspool full of toxic people who just wanted to make you hate what you were doing. <laughs> so I quit the music industry, but I still never wanted to really do anything else. And so at that point, I was an English major in college. I went to Boston University and I was like, well, I've got this English degree and a love of studio technology and I'm comfortable behind the mic and I know how to analyze and interpret things through my you know studies so like radio just seemed like this natural way of like shoving those things together into a new career and i'd also been like a shortwave radio nerd since i was about the same age so i also had this like really intense interest in broadcast media and i'd you know been listening to radio from other countries for a number of years by that point so i think i just came at it from this collision of different sensibilities that didn't necessarily align with like a traditional understanding of how radio was made or any of that sort of thing. So I think that's why I've become the strange creature that I am today. <laughs> how would you describe your writing voice? Uh, what's your, <laughs> how do you, you know, when you're pitching yourself, pitching yourself to others, how do yeah, you? Yeah, sure. I don't know that it's that different from my normal voice. I mean, I think 
I tend to, you know, the things I'm interested in writing about usually are underexposed, you know, sort of niche musical phenomena from the point of view of understanding, um, you know, I guess with my own history as a musician and my own understanding of like the headspace that musicianship can create and wanting to understand like that headspace for other musicians and other creative people. I don't think it's that similar from what you do, right? Where you're just trying to sort of see the angle of approach in terms of how different artists do what they do. And I think there's something nice about when musicians talk to other musicians, because I do think there's maybe even if you're not necessarily speaking in the same musical language, I think there's at least some understanding of that ethereal space that creation comes from. And so I just like to talk to artists about that, you know, that like, it's not, I'm definitely interested in like the facts that surround the art, the act of creation, but I think I'm also more interested in kind of getting to know that inner space that musicians and artists exist in to like do what they do. And I think that to me, like getting to the heart of that part of what musicians do is a lot more interesting than just like, what music do you love or what bands did you grow up wanting to, you know, like that kind of stuff that I think non-musicians have a harder time maybe just kind of dropping into the mindset of. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, when you were a musician that it was mostly punk, am I correct? Well, I think it was like the punk scene. So, you know, I, I came up in the 80s and this was a time when like DIY, like there was a real musical underground in the 80s that was a lot that existed earlier, but it was like a lot harder to access. So by the time I was coming up, I mean, I was like 10 years old in 1986. So already you're seeing the emergence of music scenes from Athens, Georgia and Austin, Texas and Charlotte, North Carolina. And like, there's all these different places, Raleigh, Durham, where music was coming from or Boston or whatever, you know, that weren't just the major music centers like New York and LA. And so it showed me that it was possible to be from quote unquote nowhere and to create something that like was infused with the spirit of the place that you were from. And it didn't have to be about making yourself conform to something that already existed. So I think that was kind of the organizing principle for me of that. And I'm actually forgetting what your question was because I just went into a reverie. So could you repeat the question? Well, there wasn't really a question. It was more just, you know, being a music producer or being a producer for a music department, you obviously have an eclectic taste. Um, I guess I was just kind of going to, would you consider punk your go-to genre? Yeah. So I, so I think like the punk for me was more about that attitude, right? That um, That it's not about being in any sort like that you can operate from your truly freakiest place and whatever that was was like a valid form of expression and so that to me is what punk really means i don't i don't think of it as being like this very literal sense of like england in the late 70s or new york in the mid 70s or well you know like the things that people or it's southern california a little later like these things that people think of as punk it's more of a spiritual connection to me so even the music that i was making as a kid which was like mostly electronic because I didn't have any friends and I didn't like everything I was making was like in my little bedroom. So I wasn't like trying to make all this noise. So even my like nerdy electronic music as a teenager, like to me was punk rock because it was about that DIY spirit. And I think that's an idea that most of the music world caught up with a bit later on, like in the nineties, like in a post Nirvana era for lack of a better reference point, when you would see things like Olympia, Washington or, these places where music that was not like recognizably 
aggressive or macho or male or, you know, that like there were these other perspectives and other ways of making music that were just as valid and just as representative of like a subculture that really inspired me. And so that's more, even though I did go to like hardcore punk shows and ska shows and like all that kind of stuff as a high schooler, it was more like underneath the music that I found my connection to that stuff. Now let's talk a little bit more about your audio, your radio work. As I mentioned, I, I reviewed Lost Notes on my website. I kind of gave it a, if if I hadn't had known you, I probably wouldn't have sought it out, but I was glad I did, if that makes sense. Thank you. <laughs> kind of what, to tell me the origin of that, what caused you to, to, to create that story and then kind of give for those who may not be familiar with the, the show, kind of the elevator pitch for it. Yeah, so the tagline of Lost Notes was the the greatest music story is never told, and I I immediately want to undercut the premise. <laughs> I guess being this is the punk rock part of me, which is like a fine tagline. Lost Notes, you know, I think I'm actually working on a new season right now, and I think this new season really is, for all intents and purposes, there were some stories earlier on that like were truly based on like an individual perspective and an individual reporter who went out and like found something really unique that was outside of like the firmament of what we know as music already. But, you know, Lost Notes in a way was about not necessarily stories that you don't know, because I think especially like in the later series with like Hanif Abdurraqib, where he was talking about Stevie Wonder and the Sugar Hill Gang and Grace Jones, like these are pe- artists that people know. But it was more about like a perspective that maybe you would be less familiar with or a way of framing or thinking about or, you know, contextualizing, not just culturally, but maybe in the specific psychology of the narrator, what this music means. So that to me was what Lost Notes always did really well, because I think people... Some people who were like more on the nerdier spectrum were like, I know about the shags. I already know about whatever, uh, you know, whoever artist it was were Captain Beefheart. It's like, well, yeah, of course, but you haven't heard about Captain Beefheart's like specific relationship with this reporter where he would like send her cassettes of him like doing rambling monologues or her hanging out with him and taping their conversations. You know, like there were there were angles of approach to the stories that made them what they were. And For me, the organizing principle of what I was doing, kind of my favorite thing as a radio producer is to excavate tape and excavate kind of unheard audio. So the real fun of it for me was like, if I've got this, you know, box of cassettes of Captain Beefheart talking with this reporter in his living room in Lancaster, California, you know, for weeks in a row, that like audio material is really gold, you know, because that's like, I call it on my website, I call it like an embedded history of like, you know, there's something in the fabric of tape and in the in the texture, not just of like the magnetic media, but of, you know, tape is like a, it's saturated with a kind of nostalgia. It's saturated with the sense of time and place, the way it degrades, the quality of the way it was recorded, the sort of limited conditions that cassettes exist in. Like there's something about the actual media that has a whole story inside of it, almost that's separate from the story of what is being recorded on it. And to me, that was always the piece of the Lost Notes production puzzle that I thought was really wonderful because so many of these stories involve me having to go out and either being handed things like this, like tapes or unheard audio of some kind, or I have to track down something from like a, you know, an archive or a library or someone's personal collection 
And that always has all this other sort of stuff attached to it that I think is really exciting. And I think to expose people to ways of listening to that kind of thing, where you can show them the layers underneath what they're listening to in a way that isn't necessarily always about like literally explaining it, but in a way just like setting this atmosphere for them to hear it, where it kind of soaks into them in a different way. And I think that's something that Lost Notes did really uniquely compared to a lot of other podcasts. Well, and you talk about digitizing, that kind of leads us into your other project, your newer project, Bent by Nature. Talk a little bit about that, because that's kind of connected, but not, if that makes sense. It is. No, absolutely. And, you know, Bent by Nature, this was another one of those, like, marketing conversations that I just really hated having. But they, (laughs) guess it'll be rightly so. Like, you know, Lost Notes got a lot of attention. It was a very popular show. I think I was really pleased that people understood what Nick White and I were trying to do with that show. And Nick was, Nick really kind of came up with the concept of Lost Notes and he invited me into it as like the producer sort of deputy who, you know, I did all the sound design and all the music and all that kind of stuff and edited a lot of the stories as well and worked with the authors, producers. But Bed by Nature was a show that I made sort of during the pandemic. What happened was, you know, Nick had left KCRW and Lost Notes had ended. I had done this other show called Private Playlist, which was like an interview segment that I did for Morning Edition on KCW, where I would talk to musicians about like what they were listening to during lockdown. And again, it was like the idea of it was kind of like exploring the interior of the musician, the individual musician through the music that they chose. And it was soundscaped in a way that was really similar to Lost Notes, but um, kind of a different thing. But in the meantime, I had uh, taken receipt of about eight or nine boxes of cassettes from this DJ from KCW named Deirdre O'Donoghue, who had passed away in 2001, but she, in the course of her family, sort of retrieving all of her effects, she had taped like literally hundreds, if not thousands of her shows on KCW. And after a period of time where all this stuff was kind of in limbo, they sent all of it back to KCW and it was just like rotting away in our mailroom. <laughs> like untouched and just kind of sitting there for years. And uh, I had known about Deirdre because uh, I was like a bootleg collector since a a pretty young age. And so I had done like tape trading and I sort of was involved in like a little bit on the internet of like trading bootleg tapes and bootleg recordings of bands that I really loved. And I always loved radio broadcasts because they always sounded so good. And it was, you know, not quite the same as like a live audience recording, but I was always at least like a little bit of a stickler for fidelity. So the radio stuff always tended to sound better. And Deirdre had done sessions with a lot of these like underground bands of the kinds that I was describing earlier, Camper Van Beethoven and Fetch and Bones and um, just a lot of these bands that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know unless you were like really keyed into that like mid 80s alternative underground scene that um, I was talking about. So this was really like, I was basically handed the keys to her entire archive. So all of her live sessions, all of her broadcasts, like to the extent that she had kept copies of everything. And, you know, I really quickly discovered like what a kindred spirit she was because she was also like really obsessed with this idea of taping things and of creating an archive of her work. And like, there's no particular reason why she would have done that. Like she numbered every show, like she was very meticulous about like, documenting her own work and i just think that there was something about her and about that whole thing that really appealed to me and really struck me and i think it like it's a bit of that like nerd geek thing earlier of like what is it that compels someone who 
yeah, like you kind of have to have some weird sense of your own. I mean, so if you're being uncharitable about it, like why do you think you're so important that you need to like tape all your own shows and maintain this archive? But it's not like she was doing it for anybody. I don't think she was thinking like one day I'm going to be rediscovered and all my, you know, my archive is going to be a gift to the world. Like I just think she did it for her own reasons and it was never exactly clear why. But I just felt like I was meant <laughs> I felt like I was meant to inherit this somehow like she it found the perfect person who like understood the project that she was sort of undertaking even if it was just like only in the sphere of her own mind so I went back to Case Philby and I was like look I think we need to she deserves a show about her like this there's so much here and there's so many stories to tell and every band that I would talk to about her was like they had all these amazing memories of her and she was so important to them. And people, everyone seemed to have this really strong emotional attachment to her, even though she'd been dead for 20 years. And there just was so much to say about that. I mean, being a, a female DJ in that era and, and also someone who broke so many bands and introduced so many bands to the world. And all the music that I grew up listening to was through like 120 minutes on MTV or like postmodern MTV, all those like kind of underground shows that they had uh, at first. And so much of that music, as I discovered later, came through her. Like she was the one that brought those bands over from England or Scotland or Ireland. She was the one that gave those bands from all over the US their first radio debuts and got them to perform live on the radio. And so she, I just realized how much Deirdre herself was like, significantly and materially responsible for like the person that I am. <laughs> so I felt like I had to repay this debt to her, you know, using the the platform that I had at KCW and the tools that I have as someone who knows how to restore audio and the passion that I have for all the music that she discovered and gave to me as a young person, you know, 20, 30 years before. So uh, I spent the entire pandemic digitizing over a thousand cassettes by hand on my little Nakamichi tape deck, which is still here on my desk. And Bob Carlson, who was actually her engineer back in the day, he recorded all these bands. He had to like hand bake and restore all the reel-to-reels of the live shows. So between the two of us, we put together this like 10 part radio series about her where we interviewed bands and talked to a lot of her colleagues and, and people out in the world and the music industry who knew her and, and could like tell her story for her. Uh, and that's what Bent by Nature became. So it started as a podcast, then it became a performance archive where we released a lot of those sessions back on KCW's website. Then... I wanted people, you know, there were people who I think wanted to hear just her outside of the context of our like really mediated, really edited, narrated, you know, kind of um, version of her. And so we created a 24 hour streaming station called Bent 24 on KCW's website where you can just listen only to her shows front to back. No, you know, in, like as they were heard on the radio from her original tapes. So for folks that really just want to like soak in what it was like to be with Deirdre in those like late night hours on the radio on, on you know, four nights a week by the, the time she left running all through the 80s, you know, she's premiering David Bowie's Let's Dance for the first time. She's playing, you know, music that would become like the Madchester movement with Happy Mondays and all these kinds of bands in the 90s. She's bringing all this music, you know, really early REM records, things that like are, are cornerstones of music history now. 
she had her hands on for the first time. And so it's just a really wonderful way to experience music history through the lens of this like really important woman who, you know, for her own sort of built this empire out of scratch, you know, for no money back when KCW's, you know, signal couldn't even get west of the east of the 405. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just a lot there, but I, I, I just recognized so much in who Deirdre was and what she was trying to do. And I just thought that it was worth her getting her, uh, getting her flowers as the kids say now. Aww. Well, uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, about why you do what you do. I want to talk a little bit about how you do it. What makes a story worth telling via audio to you versus, you know, handwritten? Yeah. Well, I think it has to do a lot again with that context of the, of what exists. So an audio story for me, quite naturally, like has to start with some really compelling piece of audio. So it could be, as I say, it could be a conversation on a cassette tape. It could be a live recording of a concert that someone made, you know, under their coat on a reel to reel machine, like anything like that, that exists out there in whatever format, a wire recording that someone made off of, off of a shortwave radio in the sixties, you know, there has to be some kind of grounding element of an audio thing that we can sort of peel back the layers of that's kind of what I do best. So that tends to be the first thing for me. Like if there's something, some piece of audio that I can really kind of like pierce into and kind of get into the guts of it and see kind of what's there and what, what other layers of it there are to reveal to people written stories that I do. Honestly, a lot of my writing tends to be more kind of in the service of like a thing that's coming up. So like a band is coming to town, I might do an interview or there's an exhibition happening or someone passes away and there's like a, you know, we need like a, a, an obit or a bio or something written up, or there's some other thing like that. So the written stuff tends to do have more of that kind of a function for me. I'm not so much at this point doing like longer form investigative journalism the stories that appeal to me that are bigger are ones that I want to tell through the audio medium. So I'll give you, I guess, a bit of a sneak preview of like the thing I'm working on now. So um, last year I had COVID last summer for the first time and in my like swimming haze of, you know, dislocation and disorientation, I ended up just poking around on Discogs, the website, uh, you know, which is like a deep catalog of, every known release and every known format and every country. I mean, it's like the kind of thing that I could never have dreamed of when I was a kid, (laughs) just to have access to that level of information about like records that have been released all over the world. And somehow I just got really obsessed with small press, like indie R&B records that were being released in LA, like from the 40s to the 70s. And I started like doing, I would notice all the addresses on the record labels, you know, because everybody's put like scans of the record labels up. And so I started a Google map and I was just like, I'm just going to plug in all of these record label addresses into this Google map and like just see where they all are. And so it turns out that there were like probably 300 like black owned indie record labels in LA, like in the 60s and early 70s, kind of in like the the peak of like the soul R&D era of that time. And they would often be like literally right next to each other. And like there were whole clusters and concentrations of them. And I just thought like, there's something here about like what was going on at this time that made this such a a hot spot. Like what was the groundswell of like kind of cultural activity or like ideas that, you know, guys who ran candy shops or camera stores or, you know, were worked at their local church or were postmen or like they had all these sort of normal 
world occupations. But then they'd also be starting up these little record labels, like in their garages or in their living rooms. And again, this is kind of like that DIY thing. Like I was really fascinated about that. And I think, you know, we've heard a lot about, I guess, for lack of a better term, like the kind of when we think it's like Deirdre's show is a good example. Like she played a lot of music from a lot of different types of people. But when you think of like the musical underground of the 80s, like by and large, you're talking about like a white dude thing, right? Like that's kind of the classic stereotype of like college rock, Mm -hmm. which is what it kind of came to be called, you know, like that chiming 80s white guy guitar music that like (laughs) R.E.M. kind of perfected. And here was like a whole scene that existed decades before that in the same city from a totally different set of cultural point of view that was seemingly just as vibrant and seemingly just as unconcerned with like the practical realities of what it meant to like, quote unquote, put out records. And these folks were just doing it out of their houses and out of their shops all over town. And so I just became obsessed with this idea, like unearthing all these hidden stories. And so this idea went through like a variety of iterations and eventually it's kind of boiled down to it into a slightly different story that still kind of tilts at a lot of the same ideas but again like that's that's a thing that like is just begging to be told in audio to me because you have all of these like extremely rare records you know that like may have they may have pressed like a couple hundred copies at most and like who knows how many of those even still exist and wrapped up in that you not only have those amazing songs many of which are like total bangers. I mean, these would have been as good as what was being put out by like mainstream soul and R&B record labels at the time. But because they were made outside of that machinery, you know, I mean, it's like that question of like, which artists become successful, who becomes a hit, who doesn't. So much of it has to do with like the vagaries of the time and the place that are completely independent of that person's talent or even necessarily their ambition. So it just kind of like, it just, it sells itself to me as like a story that needs to be told. And because it's attached to all this amazing music, because it's rooted in a place and a time and it's, it, there are so many implications of that story. You can talk about the economic situation. You could talk about the social situation. You can talk about ideas of music as a form of communal expression, like, fundamentally as i said at the beginning of our conversation like music is a thing that everybody can own and everybody does own like intuitively without any ideas about copyright or attribution or what song is borrowed from somebody else or riffing on someone else's thing all of this just existed in this like energy field and that's the kind of thing that to me just like begs to be told as an audio story that is awesome. Well, that kind of leads into uh, another question that I'd been was on my list of things I wanted to make sure I asked you. Um, as I mentioned, sure. being a music producer, you kind of are almost required to have a wide and eclectic taste in music and, and, and interest. <laughs> where do you go and where would you recommend people to go to get new music, to get listen to something that they sure. may not have be familiar with? Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I've got to give credit to my KCW DJs, because there are some amazing DJs on KCW. And I know, it's interesting to like, watch the generations of KCW listeners come and go, because it, (laughs) I think you have to like, start from this position of, everybody has something to expose me to. And I think like, 
as I certainly with like the Deirdre project, and I think this is like a, just a typical generational thing, but like, I think everybody assumes that the music that happened when they were in their twenties was like the best music and like had the most, whatever, you know, those ineffable things that we attach to music that are usually just attached to our emotional experiences of the music and are not intrinsic to the music itself. So case for the least DJs have a lot to offer. There's a lot going on. We have some amazing, talented, beautiful, souls on the radio who are are playing lots of amazing stuff around the clock. I now split my time in Austin, Texas, and I can tell you that same thing is not happening here. (laughs) So KCW is a resource that the whole world can enjoy. Aside from a plug for my place of employment, I would also say Mixcloud is a really great place to go. I actually spend a lot of time on a radio station called Soho Radio, which is out of Soho in London. Mm -hmm. They also actually have a station in New York in Soho, funnily enough, which I think they got later on. Soho Radio also has a similarly wild range of shows, some of which I'm like incredibly obsessed with and listen to every week. You know, it's like I really still believe in like the power of the DJ. I mean, I think as much as people do like Spotify playlists or whatever, like their algorithmic playlist of choice, I think there's something about a human being exposing their soul to you through the music that they choose and that they love and those juxtapositions and those through lines that people can create with the music that they love that like just is not literally possible to exist in any kind of an automated way although the algorithms can be frighteningly good at times Mm -hmm. i still appreciate like the human curated aspect of that so dj culture is alive and well it doesn't have to be dance music in fact most of it is not you know there's people who are DJing field recordings. There are people who are DJing, you know, avant-garde piano music. There are people who are DJing spiritual jazz. You know, like anything you think you do or don't like, I think just poking around on some of those. Dub Lab is another really big one that obviously is an LA institution. They eat everyone's lunch in a lot of ways in terms of the sort of stuff that they present and the sophistication and the point of view that they bring to the work that they do. Those are a couple of them, I guess, just to start. But I think, you know, find yourself like a a station or a channel that, you know, has things that you wouldn't necessarily have an automatic interest in and just like spend some time swimming around. And yeah, you'll be surprised. And I think a good a good DJ, a good show will surprise you, will throw things at you that even if you if they lead you in by something that you already know and love they might bring you around to something else and then spit you out the other side with a whole other range of things to explore. Are you familiar at all with radio that's with five zero five O's at the end.com radio radio like being fired off into space. <laughs> um, no, tell me about radio. Uh, basically it's a musical time machine. You put, you can pick a time and a place and it will present music that's based from there. So if like you want to hear twenties, South African music, Oh, you, hey, I love that. It will do that. So that's something I've been playing around with lately, which is why I asked. Uh, because Oh, Radio Garden, of course, is the other one where you can kind of spin around the globe and listen to radio stations from around the world, you know, based on the whatever streaming stations exist in those places. So that's like a really amazing. And that was something that was sort of like adjacent to my shortwave radio listening as a kid where like I became really obsessed with Iranian radio stations because I think like Iranian music, Egyptian music, North African music, music from like what we call the Middle East, some breathtaking 
innovative, incredible, soul-stirring music comes out of those places. And those radio stations often have like deep archives of things that they've recorded in their own studios over like, you know, a, the last century that you're literally never even going to find on any kind of a record or CD or streaming service. So in a, similarly with radio, I would ex- <laughs> uh, recommend Radio Garden as well. Yes. Now, this is actually a, the, the legitimate tough question. I'm not going to ask what Ooh. it's kind of based off of the what's your favorite musician, uh, but it's more yeah. I'm, I'm expanding it a little bit for you. Okay. Uh, the sure. des- Desert Island Disc question. You're on a desert island. You have five albums that you have that that's the only things you can listen to. What are they? My five. Okay. Um, I'm going to say there's two by Laurie Anderson that I can never choose between. And that's Big Science and Mr. Heartbreak. I would never, ever be able to choose between those two. <laughs> so I don't know if I don't know how I would work around that. But let's see. Other five. Hajira by Joni Mitchell and or Hissing of Summer Lawns. But I think it would have to be Hajira. Maybe The Golden Age of Wireless by Thomas Dolby. Five. Let's see. Oh, my God. Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise? And let's see, I used to have an answer to this question right on the tip of my tongue, always. Let's see, a fifth album. I'm going to go with uh, kind of a wild choice, which is um, this record by a New York musician named David Von Tegum. And he was kind of this late 70s, very active in like the avant-garde rock scene in New York, uh, kind of no-wave post-punk scene. He made a composition for a Twyla Tharp dance piece, mm. and the show was called Fate Accompli, but the album, it was released on Warner Brothers under the name These Things Happen in 1984, and it has like all of these, like if you are someone who is familiar with like the kind of New York avant-garde underground of that time, um, he's got like all of these people playing or singing or performing on his record in some way or another, but it's it's a distillation of a lot of the things I love. He uses a lot of found sound. He uses a lot of field recordings. He uses a lot of kind of unidentified broadcasts. He plays every possible kind of thing as a percussion instrument. That's kind of what he's known for. He's a percussionist drummer. And the melodies that he comes up with are just these really hauntingly beautiful kind of minimalism derived, but also kind of otherworldly they're compositions but like they're also just like rhythmic sonic objects and it was a really it came out on a major label i mean it was just like a really strange record that i can't imagine sold more than like 500 copies <laughs> when it was released but it's and i think david himself has put it up on bandcamp since then so i think it's it's back out there again finally but that record just transports me to another universe and i guess if i if I had chosen one of the Laurie Andersons and I still had a slot, I would probably say Music for 18 Musicians by Steve Reich, the original recording on ECM. Hi, this is Mark Balchani, and I'm speaking out with Angie Speaker Sutton. Want to support the podcast at my website? Be sure to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you use, as well as podchaser.com. You can also support me financially through my coffee account. You can find me there and on other various social media platforms with the handle Angie F. Sutton. Also, be sure to sign up for my monthly newsletter and see links to my social media and all the places you can listen to this podcast and episode transcripts. They're all available at my website, AngieFSutton.com. I want to hear from you. Call my Google Voice number, 424-341-2252, and leave a short message about what you're geeking out about. You may wind up on a future episode. Zencaster is now the all-in-one solution making podcasting easy. 
That's how I record these great interviews. It provides high-quality audio and video podcast production and hosting. With a full suite of professional tools, podcasters can seamlessly record, produce, and publish studio-quality content all from one dashboard. Being a creator has never been easier. It's now super easy to record a podcast with Zencaster. Log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. Record studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. Feel a sense of zen knowing Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. Go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code contents may vary. You'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster played plan. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. And now back to my interview with Mike Dodge Weiskopf. Now, before we wrap things up and go into things, I just want to talk a little bit more, a little bit about your gear. Uh, obviously, over the yeah. years, you've had different gear and different stuff. Kind of talk a little Quite bit for, for someone who may not be familiar with an audio production. Tell me a little bit about your gear. Yeah, so I've actually always kind of rode pretty low key on the gear that I use. I don't, I'm not someone who has like bags and boxes and studios full of gear because I have moved like 30 times in my adult life and <laughs> I just can't carry that much around. But the main tool of my trade is that it's a Zoom F8. It's a multi-track recorder. It's a bit of a brick. I mean, it's it's like a full hand size thing. Like if you had all your fingers spread out, you could probably just barely get your hands around it. It's an eight channel recorder. So you can either record eight channels live or you know do subreading, whatever. I use that both for my cassette transfers. I use it for um, rehearsing with my band that my husband and I have. We have a band called Warm Sound and we do a lot of our recording through that and also like live rehearsals. I use it for going out into the field to do interviews on location. I use it for scoring or any kind of like, just, it's kind of like my all purpose recorder. It's not like the most, it's not very battery friendly and it's not necessarily the best portable device, but it is like the bedrock thing that I just literally unplug and carry around the house or whenever I have to go anywhere to do any serious recording because it's got a really quiet preamp if we're getting geeky, like the, the sort of signal to noise ratio of it is like really favorable. Recordings on it are extremely clean, extremely quiet. You're only getting the sounds you're trying to capture as opposed to like hum or hiss or any of the things that tend to come with like lower quality gear and i just love it it's just a beautiful little machine so i'm i'm in a a, a polyamorous relationship with the Zoom <laughs> and uh and my partner cassette deck wise the nakamichi i have a dr1 the gold standard of their cassette decks is the dragon I don't quite have the many thousands of dollars that those things go for used, but I picked up a DR1 for like 500 bucks about 12 years ago and I had it professionally restored. I had to get on a waiting list with this like wine guy that, that restores these things by hand and he uh, replaced a bunch of the capstans and, you know, tuned up the motor and just got into the guts of it and made it all pretty and beautiful and it took like a year and a half to get it back from him, but she's running strong and i love this one because you can like adjust the azimuth which is kind of like the alignment of the tape head on the cassette and if you're someone who's recorded cassettes on like a variety of tape decks over the decades as i have the alignment on every tape deck is different so like you record it on one deck and then 20 years later you play it on a different deck it's gonna sound muddy or you'll get this like wow and flutter there's all these artifacts and like this machine allows you to like dial in the exact 
position of the head as it might have been on the original machine. And so you just, it brings this clarity to the audio that like you probably never would have imagined was possible. And also like the playback speed is extremely precise and consistent and it just makes everything shine, um, everything that I put into it. So I use this a lot, especially because I do tend to have to do a lot of my own transfers for things that I involve for my projects. Microphone wise, when I do field recordings, I have an Audio-Technica BP4025 which is a stereo field recording mic. It's kind of an all-in-one. A lot of people like to do kind of uh, their own configuration where they have two mics and they kind of point the left and right channels individually and align it however. I'm not someone like, you know, when I go to Yemen or when I go to Bulgaria or when I go to West Africa, like I'm not in a position to take all of that amount of gear. So I have one mic. It's got a left and right configuration axis, XY axis configuration on it. Again, super low noise, makes beautiful detailed recordings. And when you pair that with like a nice windbreaker setup, I mean, you can be recording like outside on the very tip of an island at night with like the sea breeze blowing in and you're not capturing any of that. Like it just, you're just purely capturing like the sound of whatever it is that you're putting in front of it. So an extremely satisfying microphone. Music gear wise, hmm, I have an Ovation 64 key keyboard that's fine you know i don't have strong opinions about midi controllers i use ableton live for the actual music and uh, analog lab is the kind of plug-in suite that i use to get like a lot of analog uh, emulators for kind of synth sounds because i tend to prefer analog type synthesizer sounds and i use uh let's see what else could i say uh for a drum set i have a roland i think it's the td25 like a really it's one of their higher end like electronic drum sets with like really superior touch sensitivity and the replication of like the skin tension and that sort of thing. So that's kind of like one piece of gear for everything that I do (laughs) (laughs) for the lack of like going down a deep list. But those are the things that I tend to put my hands on uh, every day, week to week. Perfect. Now, if someone came to you and said, Hey, Mike, I want to get into audio production, what would be the one thing the, the first tip out of your mouth you want to well, make sure that they I, I have. Think, yeah, well, I actually think like in spite of the entire spiel that I just gave about gear, I would say the first thing you should develop is just familiarity and comfort with whatever it is that you have. And, you know, I, I think people who are just starting out, because I think one thing to be mindful of, like in this day and age, is that like, you know, we are all, we're not all starting on the same playing field in terms of our economic status or access to capital or access to gear or, you know, like there's all these kind of things that prevent people who have the rights, have stories to tell and like should have their stories told. Have they been gatekept out of this world for, you know, as long as these fields have existed because there's always usually some grouchy white guy who's like, you know, you're not using the right X, Y, Z and you'll never get to do whatever because you can't. It's like, I'm really in favor of, demolishing all of those ideas and like you know putting all those people into the grave because i think the most important thing to me is to have a story and to have a sensibility and to have a point of view and a perspective and i think if you have those things you can record on anything and you know the spirit of what you are trying to say will come through and you know that speaks to the things that i'm interested in you know because i the things that I love are not things that are always cleanly recorded or perfectly engineered or whatever. Like I love getting something that is rough, but that imparts something, some essential quality of what it is 
that it, where it came from or the person who created it or, or held it was trying to convey. And I think based on that, like you could make a Pulitzer Prize winning story on an iPhone mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. You know, like I'm, I'm not a purist or a snob about like the gear. I think that's kind of a last step in some ways that it has to come from a place of rooting yourself in an authentic expression of whatever it is that you want the world to know about, whether it's from you or someone in your orbit or something that you've stumbled upon or discovered in your own, you know, sphere of, of influence and interest. I will say though, that like one piece of gear that I, I can't believe I forgot this, but post-production, yeah, most people say fixing it in post is like a horrible, like if you can get it better the first time, obviously you do, but if you're in a position to just get the thing, then you have to get the thing. But Isotope is a software company and they make something called RX and it's like an audio reparation software. I literally put every single thing I do through them first because as much as I appreciate a raw scruffy piece of thing, I also, in my own finished product, I like to kind of shine it up as much as I can. So RX just allows me to do like every possible thing, whether it's take reverb out of a room, get rid of room tone, get rid of plosives, get rid of, you know, ground hum, like the things that I like a little bit of that stuff, you know, in what I'm presenting to the public. But I do also, if it's something where that texture isn't important, like if it's just an interview that I'm doing with someone like now, I'd like to spend a little time on it to make it sound better, but that's just my personal preference. That's my personal aesthetic. Mm -hmm. I totally recognize that other people could record on like, you know, a 90s style micro cassette recorder and it would be amazing and awesome and would sound fine. But I think RX-10 is like a miracle, a miracle program. And it's like the one positive use of AI that I can think of (laughs) off the top of my head. Machine learning, as yes. we say. Well, and as I've learned doing this podcast, there there's a fine line between having something too professionally produced. Like if you took out all in when I edit this, when I take if I took out all of the ums and ands and little things, you don't sound human. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, I, honestly, like I, there's a few other podcasts that I work on on kind of a freelance basis. And quite often the work that I'm doing is like rehumanizing. It's like, yeah, you can't, as you say, it has to sound like the person who's speaking. It has to honor the rhythms of their speech. It has to honor all those qualities that, you know, make help them convey it. Like I'm someone who says, you know, about every other word. I recognize that about myself. <laughs> so if you were to take, you could certainly spend the hours of your life taking those out, but why bother? Exactly. Bye. Now, back when this was still called Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton, I would always ask, what are you currently geeking out about? So that's, what are you currently the one you know it can be music yeah a movie it can be a podcast what what's the one thing that you're just telling everybody about I thought, lately i thought a lot about this question because it um the sad reality is that a lot of what i'm geeking out right on is like my own music that i made as a teenager because as i yep. said i'm doing this digitizing project right now but i think to look outside of myself for four minutes just the other day my partner brian showed me this movie called ennis mean um e-n-y-s-m-e-n and uh He's like, I'm not going to tell you. He's like, you have to close your eyes. I don't want you to see what this is. I just want you to see this movie because I think you'll really love it. And I've actually been completely obsessed with it ever since he showed it to me. It's billed as like a folk horror film, but it is not a folk horror film. Okay. Um, it is a film that it came out last year. It is an experimental film. It is a sort of narrative film. It was made by this guy named Mark Jenkin, who's a, I think he's a Cornish director. And he uh, made another movie a few years ago, uh, which was called, 
what was his uh, bait was his last movie that was kind of a bigger movie he shoots his movies on a hand cranked bolex camera and 16 millimeter and it just you know if you're familiar with the term hauntology i'm sure you've come across this in your geekery it kind of describes this like 1970s era of like british sort of supernatural uncanny again like people describe it as horror but it's that sort of sense of something that hasn't it comes from an analog era has a bit of that like dust and degradation and texture an unsettled atmosphere something that seems sort of quotidian and maybe repetitive and not necessarily rooted in any sort of narrative speaks to some sense that like there are kind of ghosts in the machine or that there's a thin the, the thinness of the veil between our world and another world and again it, like it would be impossible to describe like what the story of the movie is and i think i could give you a pricey but i think it's better it's sort of a tone poem i guess as if i were to describe it as anything but um i first saw it literally just saw it, i think last weekend and i can't stop thinking about it and i'm probably going to watch it again tonight so <laughs> ns mean is what it's called and it's really oh it just makes my soul hum in this really amazing way. I also really liked Skinnamarink, which has kind of a similar vibe to it. Another movie that a lot of people just describe as like long shots of dark rooms and nothing else really happens. I love movies like that. So I'm all about movies that just like set you down somewhere and let you stare into the void of your own. Uh, that kind of, you know, it, it pushes you to the edges of your own understanding and comprehension of not just like time but how we kind of exist in the world and how the world encroaches upon us in ways that our sort of limited monkey brains can only sort of get at so it's just a really amazing little movie that's what i'm obsessed with right now okay so um now is time for the lightning round i've randomized Uh-oh. the questions uh, the basic the this is based off of kind of a combination a silly version of the questions that get asked at the end of inside the actor studio um, <laughs> okay and the goal is to just answer off the top of your off the cuff you know just whatever comes first to your mind nothing these are not serious these are not serious questions these are silly okay. questions Great. so i've randomized them so because i know i hate keep them on the website that way you're they're still somewhat at you know a bit of a surprise so sure. Favorite or lucky number? Uh, 23. Would you rather see Captain Kirk become a Jedi or Luke Skywalker become captain of the Enterprise? Oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to go with the, uh, with the Jedi. <laughs> if you were a superhero or villain, what power would you have? Um, uh, I would uh, have the ability to, let's see. Um, oh, my God. I'm so bad at lightning rounds. Uh, what would my power be? Uh, my power would be to uh, rescue any object from uh, a trash dump. Awesome. Favorite color? Blue. Thoughts on pineapple on pizza? Absolutely. Awesome. What's your comfort movie? Uh, Wings of Desire. What's your favorite superstition or conspiracy theory? You don't have to believe in it. Hmm. Oh, boy. There are so many to choose from now. <laughs> uh favorite conspiracy theory uh i must have so many i'll have to get back to you on that one but i will give you an answer okay what is your favorite time of day 
that would be um, that would be like uh, what do they call it? First light. Okay. Now this might be a little more difficult for you. What's your go-to song to sing in the shower? Probably something by the Cocteau Twins. Maybe <laughs> 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 uh, go-to song in the shower. Actually, that's not true. What is my go-to song in the shower? Yeah, I'm gonna say uh, "Secrets Who Are Lovers" by the Cocteau Twins. Awesome. Who would you want to play you in the movie about your life? Uh, John Turturro. Ooh. What is your favorite stovetop burner? Upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right. <laughs> I love this question. Uh, I'm gonna say upper left. Your favorite drink? Uh, I will go to hell for this answer, but it's Coke Zero. <laughs> What's your favorite curse word? And yes, we can curse on this. Uh, let's see. Favorite curse word. Brian could probably answer that question more than me. Huh. I use them with such frequency. I feel like I have to, I'd have to run. I'd have to run an AI to like. Is that like choosing your favorite baby? It kind of is. Um, I mean, fucking fuck is kind of a classic. So I'll just okay. go with that one. Uh, favorite meal? Favorite meal. Um it's a tie between Chicago deep dish and Ethiopian food. Who's your favorite James Bond or Batman? I thought you were going to say villain. I was going to say Grace Jones. Uh, huh. I'm going to just have to, I mean, I'm an Adam West person, so we're going to just go there. Okay. When you're getting dressed, do you button and zip or zip then button? <laughs> uh, let's see. I think I button first. Yeah. Favorite smell. Hmm. Wow. I have so many. Uh, I'm going to say new tires. (laughs) That's a weird (laughs) one. (laughs) And then these two aren't on the list, but they're stolen from the the questionnaire from uh, inside the actor studio that I specifically put because I wanted you there. What is the sound or noise that you love? Uh, The call to prayer. And what is the sound or noise that you hate? Screaming children. Now, if someone were to want to get to know more about you or to get in contact with you, how would they do that? My website is an excellent place to start. There's a contact form there, and it has uh, excerpts from many of the fine things we've talked about today. So it's mike.me. That's M-Y-K-E dot M-E. And I have learned that you actually have to put the www for that or else it won't load. So... And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks to Mike Dodge-Weiskopf for being interviewed. As always, any URLs mentioned are in the show notes for this episode on my website. Thanks also to composer Marco Beltrami for the mid-show plug. I interviewed him in episode 21. This is Angie Fiedler-Sutton. From one-on-one interviews to red carpets and conventions to roundtable discussions, I bring you a little bit of everything. After all, contents may vary. 